Well, let's continue to praise God as we listen to what He has to say to us in His Word. Let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse May happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word to us today. Amen? Amen. We're going to walk through the text together this morning. Keep your fingers in your Bibles. Just stay right on open to John chapter 5. Let's begin by looking at chapter 5, verse 1. Let's go back and read it together. I'll read, you follow along. After this, and you remember the this here is everything that happened as he was traveling from Judea up through Samaria and then into Galilee. Last week, we saw when Jesus was in Galilee, he had the encounter with the official who had the sick son. There was a healing. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. How long after was this event? We're we're not really sure. Uh, And what feast is it? 
we don't really know, but we know that there were a number of different feasts that were commanded by the Lord for Jews to participate in. In order to do many of these feasts, they had to go up to Jerusalem. So Jesus, being the good, faithful Jewish man that he was, went up to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the feasts. A little quick little Bible trivia thing for you. Uh, if you look at this on a map and you see that Jerusalem is down south and, and Jesus was in Galilee up north, you may be asking, why does it say that Jesus went up to Jerusalem? Well, it's just because of the elevation change. It doesn't mean he went north to Jerusalem. It means he went up. That's how Jews would have thought about it, going up, 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 away from the sea level of Galilee to the higher ground of Jerusalem. All right, now let's look at verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Okay, so, yeah, John tells his readers, hey, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know what I'm talking about. There's this sheep gate, and if it's the same sheep gate that's mentioned three times in the book of Nehemiah, then it's probably on the north side of the city, right? So, and, and, and so John says, by this sheep gate, there is this pool. Uh, no diving board, don't think about it like that. It's, it's probably a place that's dug out of the ground where maybe spring water feeds water into this little area and then they build stuff around where that would happen. Not a lake, not anything big, just maybe even the size of this room, a pool. Okay, and this pool was called Bethesda. And then John says that around the pool were these, these colonnades, these roofed colonnades. And a colonnade is just whenever you have two columns next to each other. That's a colonnade, and you typically don't have them by themselves. They, they're typically colonnade after colonnade after colonnade. And then John says that these were roofed colonnades, okay? So they were covered, which makes sense if you think about life in the ancient Near East, right? Protection from the, the sun and the heat. And, and John tells us next in verse 3 that, well, just look there with me, in these, that is under these colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids. Well, what's an invalid? Well, it's somebody who's either blind or lame or who has been paralyzed. Now, there are two reasons why invalids would gather under these colonnades. The, the first reason is probably the most obvious reason. It's just protection from the elements, right? It's hot. It, it rains. You're, if you're paralyzed, you don't want to be stuck out under the elements with no protection. You can't move yourself from one place to another. So the safest place for you to be is where you have some kind of covering, right? If you think about life in bigger cities, where do you most often see homeless people? You see them under bridges and overpasses because there's protection from the elements, the second reason why the invalids were gathered uh, under these colonnades around this pool is for healing. It's for healing. You see, there was a superstition in that day that said that an angel would come down and stir the waters. And whenever that happened, whenever the waters in this pool would stir, the first person to get into the water could be healed. And so... Every kind of invalid would come around and get under the colonnades and, and sit and watch and wait, hoping, praying for the water to stir. And then if the water did stir, hoping and praying that, that they could be the first one, that they could get to the head of the line and get down into the water so that they could receive healing. Now, lest we be too quick to judge these ancient people for being so superstitious and believing in things like this, 
I think we would do well to remember that modern man is just as superstitious as ancient man. We just replace angels with peer review studies and then we carry on. You know, ancient men believed in healing waters. We believe that putting essential oils on the bottoms of our feet can cure crippling depression. But it's the same kind of thing. Also, please note that the text does not say that healing did take place in the pool. The text is merely describing what was happening at the time, what people believed at the time. We're going to see a little bit later who actually can do the healing. But again, lest we be too haughty, I just want you to know that we have our own modern equivalents of bubbling healing pools, except for our modern equivalents have the word clinic after them, and there are charts on the wall, and, and we think, oh yeah, this is definitely on the up and up, it's super scientific, and well, there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. Now, let's move on to verse 4. Is everybody there? Everybody at verse 4? Everybody tracking? No, huh. All right. Hey, listen. There's a, 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 it's not a super long talk about why there's no verse 4 in John chapter 5 here. It's just not something I want to spend a lot of time on this morning. It's kind of technical. It involves the history of Bible translation and how we got chapter and verse numbers and textual criticism and blah, blah, blah. We can have that conversation. It's totally fine. If you're a member of this church, I'm going to put an article in this week's newsletter that will explain why that's not there from a Bible scholar who's probably more qualified to make that argument than, uh, than I am. But I just want to tell you, it's not that it's not there because the Bible is not trustworthy. It's there because, it's not there because we have a very trustworthy Bible. So be on the lookout in the newsletter. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, Sean, uh, what if I'm not a member and I don't get the newsletter? Ah, well then, membership classes, those are for you. <laughs> All right. Now let's read verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. One man who was there, who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. Now, so we... We zero in on one particular invalid. We remember that it says, the text says back in verse 3 that there was a mass of invalids, right? A lot of people are gathered around the pool waiting, hoping for the healing. But now John zeroes in on this, this one man. And was he brought there just during the feast? Or did he live there all the time? We don't know. All that we really seem to know is that he had been an invalid for 38 years. That is... A long time to wrap your mind around. 38 years. That's three years longer than I've been alive. I was talking to, well, I don't want to say who. I was talking to somebody last week and they were telling me that they were on like their 33rd wedding anniversary. And I just thought, 33 years or something like that. You can correct me after service. But that's just so long. It's so much grace. And then I thought, geez, that's just two years less than I've been alive. And then that leads me to think about this man. 38 years, and then Jesus goes to him. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now again, remember, there was a multitude of invalids, and Jesus almost passes through the sea of all of these blind and lame men and women, and he goes directly to 
to this man. And he asks him a very simple question. Do you want to be healed? Uh, Much has been said and written about this question. Usually the commentary about this question is something along the lines of, well, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us that if we want to be healed, we have to want it. Oh, that's not very insightful. In order for Jesus to heal you, you have to really want it. Jesus can help you, but first he needs to know that you want his help. Yeah, I don't really think that's what's happening here. I mean, I think that Jesus knows that this man wants to be healed. That's why he's at the pool in the first place. Everyone is at the pool because they want to be healed. Now, notice the man's response in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And the man's immediate response, where his mind immediately goes, is to the water. He probably thinks that Jesus is asking him about his place in line around the pool. He probably thinks that Jesus is asking him, hey, do you want me to help you get into the pool? Because I... I can see that you're having trouble getting into the pool and if you want to be healed, like I can help you. That's probably what this man is thinking that Jesus is asking him. And doesn't this feel like every other kind of interaction we've seen between Jesus and other people in the Gospel of John? Right? Jesus says something or asks something and he's speaking at this level but they're thinking at this level. Think about the temple. Jesus says, you, re- you tear down this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. Or think about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again, and he's trying to figure out how that works. Or think about Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, right? Living water. I have living water for you. And she goes, I don't know of a spring around here outside of this well. Think about the disciples and heavenly food. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And here again in chapter 5, Jesus offers this man who is broken, In the form of a question, healing, do you want to be healed? And this man thinks, oh, you can logistically help me get healing in this way instead of seeing that Jesus is offering him true healing, divine healing, heavenly healing, healing for not only his body but his soul. Jesus is offering this man healing in the same way that he offered water to the woman at the well. The water that he offered to the woman at the well would leave her never thirsty again. The healing that he offers this man is holistic healing. Friends, you should know that people still misunderstand Jesus' offering of healing today. Many mistake Jesus' offer of eternal healing with the offer of temporary bodily healing. Although he can do that, but that's all they hear. That's all they see. That's all that they think Jesus can do for them. That's all they want from Jesus. This man, at best, views Jesus as a means of getting a better place in line so that maybe his body can be fixed by a miraculous pool. But at the end of the day, even if he does get this healing, even if he does go down into the water and it does actually work, to what avail? 
It says he's been like this for 38 years. Do you know what the average life expectancy of a man was in the days of Jesus? About 40 years. Now that's, you know, that's a, you know, sometimes lower, sometimes higher. But even if the man lived to be 50 or 60, what he's so desperately hoping for is for his body to be fixed so that he can have some sense of physical normalcy. But then he's going to die. Many people are still doing this today. They look to Jesus as a means of getting out of trouble or fixing their marriage or healing their bodies or helping with depression or battling their, their addictions. And to be sure, Jesus can do all of these things. But to only seek after Jesus because of what he can offer us in this life is like taking the cash out of the register but not getting the gold out of the safe. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. I, I just love this. I, I love the contrast here, you know. No having to get in the pool, no logistics. Jesus just speaks. I got two things that I want you to see about this healing in John 5. The first I want you to see is the power of God's speech. The power of God's speech. I want you to, to recognize in Jesus' simple command the true power of God. This is what the true power of God looks like. Not what you see on TBN or whatever the modern equivalent of that is. I don't even know if people still watch TBN because of the internet. Not, not your faith healer. No incantations. No spells, no mumbling a bunch of gibberish, no entering into a trans-like state where your head falls back and your eyes roll into your skull, no waiting for the waters to do the right thing, no recitation of just the right prayer, just the simple act of speaking. I want you to notice the difference between the superstitions of the day and the true power from heaven. One has a recipe, a formula, you know, one eye of newt, one crow's feather, three baby mice, that sort of thing. The other just speaks. Jesus says, get up, and the man obeys. His body obeys. That's the power of God. Think about yourself and your own ability to speak and to bring things into existence. Pretty pathetic, right? I can't even speak and get my children to obey. God speaks and he gets this man whose body has been broken for 38 years to immediately obey. As human beings, we write, we write checks with our mouths that we cannot cash. Right? We say things all the time that we cannot do. We over-promise and under-deliver. But when God speaks, it's the same thing as God acting. His speech is action. And you see this throughout the entire Bible. In Genesis 1, God doesn't have to put together a big to-do in order to create the universe. He doesn't need blueprints. He doesn't need a staff and a crew 
He doesn't need planning. He doesn't need instrumentation. God just says, world, come into existence. And the world comes into existence. And then you see this reverberated throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just a couple examples, Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Friends, God has never spoken a word of failure. God has never said something that has not come to pass. God has never spoken an impotent word. He's never commanded something to be that has not come to be. If he did that, he would cease to be God. His word accomplishes. Isaiah 46.10, I declare the end from the beginning. In this season of heavy political prognostication, so many people think they know what's coming down the pipeline. Oh, I, in the market in six months with this and the president, and he's going to hand it off to Kamala. You better, you better watch it in two years. That's what's going to happen. We can't declare what's going to happen next week today. But God declares the end from the beginning. In ancient times, from what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and all my good pleasure I will accomplish. This is the power of God. And it's so obvious in the ministry of Jesus. The second thing that I want you to see here is the very obvious nature of this man's healing. Again, if you turn on TBN or whatever the modern equivalent is, wherever you go to watch faith healers these days, their YouTube channel probably, you'll probably find some kind of faith healer claiming to heal someone of the big three. Okay, This is the big three for faith healers. Back pain, severe migraines, or fibromyalgia. And there's a reason why these sorts of illnesses tend to be 95% of what you see on these crusades. It's because these diagnoses, these illnesses, they're not either easily verifiable or refutable. But cancer, on the other hand, well, there's either a tumor there or there isn't. Either your, your white blood cell count is up or it isn't. A withered hand, it's either withered or it's normal. A, a dead body, the heart's either beating or it's not. The person's either alive or dead. Because these faith healers are peddling lies, they have to protect themselves and they can't allow anyone that's too obviously sick, too obviously broken, to get too close to them when the cameras are on. So what do they do? Well, they put people in place at their events. You go to a healing crusade, one that may even come to North Alabama soon. And what you'll find is that if you walk up and you are obviously deformed, security will screen you out and they will put you in the back. And there is not an ice cube's chance in hell of you making it up to the front. No stage four brain cancer. No severe injuries, no withered limbs, no blindness, no crippled legs, no mental retardation. 
Nothing too significant, nothing too severe or concrete. But here we have a man who is obviously an invalid. He's not acting. He's been like this for 38 years. You know, even Andy Kaufman didn't have the the will and the tenacity to pull off that long of a charade. He's not a plant in the audience like at so many faith healing events. He's been this way for so long that it says that Jesus knew about him. And not only Jesus, 38 years, everybody knows about this guy. Oh, that's old Benjamin, you know, back by the pool again. How sad is that? Maybe this year will be his year. The miraculous nature of this healing reminds me of something we're going to see a little bit, a little bit later. Turn with me to John chapter 11. starting in verse 38 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. <clears throat> then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been in there for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You see the same elements here as in John chapter 5, don't you? I mean, you see the very obvious nature of his healing. The man's been dead for four days. He's been dead and in this tomb for so long that his sister is like, "Uh, you, you don't want to open that. It's going to smell really bad. He's been in there dead for four days. And the other thing that you see that's very similar to John 5 is the fact that Jesus just speaks. Now, he prays at first, but it's not a spell. It's not an incantation. It's not a talisman. He doesn't hold anything up. He just talks to God and then commands it, and it happens. In this morning's text, a man goes from being completely bedridden for 38 years to immediately standing up and walking. That is a true miracle. Think about it some more. Just Some of us get dizzy if we stand up too fast after we've been sitting down for too long. If you get, uh, have to get a cast put on your leg after you, you break it and it's on there for 8 weeks, 12 weeks, The doctor tells you, hey, don't do too much too fast on it because, you know, the muscles are atrophied. And then when we finally can move the limb, it's difficult, it's stiff, it's it's painful. Walking feels like something that we have to slowly work our way back into. Or even a level up above that. Think about someone who comes out of a severe coma that they've been in maybe for years. This person who's been immobile 
on a bed for years, when they wake up, they're not immediately able to move. They have to relearn nearly everything, all of their fine motor skills, how to brush their teeth, how to write their name, how to stand up out of bed, how to bend over and pick up a piece of paper. This man, after 38 years of being an invalid, so much of an invalid that he did not in his own strength have the ability to get up and go near the pool, is able to stand up, roll up his bed, and walk away. Friends, Jesus is not a big tent revivalist. He is not a snake oil salesman or a subway scam artist. He's the real deal. And after I've been, I've been chewing on this text all week, and I really believe that Jesus chose this man. Remember, amongst all the, the people who were there, I believe that Jesus chose this man who had been so obviously broken for so long to show off his glory in a very obvious and irrefutable way. And I think he succeeded. Now look at verses 9 through 18. Go back to chapter 5. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So yeah, here's the scene. Jesus heals the guy. Who knows what happened? You know, maybe the dude was just so overwhelmed with joy and excitement that he was just distracted. Maybe a crowd gathered around him. They just couldn't believe. Benjamin, it's finally happened for you, you know? And maybe in the midst of all that chaos, Jesus kind of just slips away, as he tends to do in many of these situations in the gospel. But either way, he walks away. And this man's healing is so significant, so obvious, so public, that the Jews recognize it, and they go to him, and they celebrate. No, that's not what happens, is it? They go to him, and they accuse him. They say, hey, 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 you're not supposed to be rolling up your bed on the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. We read this morning the main scripture from the book of Exodus where the Lord commands his people to rest on the Sabbath. There are a couple other places in the Old Testament that flesh it out a little bit more. But you should know that you can scan all the texts in the Old Testament about Sabbath breaking and you will not find anything like a man rolling up his bed and walking, being healed as a violation of the Sabbath. What these men are relying on is called the Mishpah. It's a a bunch of rabbinical tradition It's kind of long and complicated, but basically all these rabbis, they were so afraid of the law being broken that they built a law around the law, and then a law around the law around the law. Imagine that there's a big pit out there, and if you go and if you you fall off the pit, you're going to die. So what do you do? Well, you, you build a fence. That's good. The pit is sin and hell and death. God doesn't want that for us. He gives us a law which operates as a fence. But imagine that people still sometimes go over the fence and they die. 
Or maybe some of the people who think they're being wise in the community go, you know what we need? We need a fence around the fence. And then a fence around that fence. And that's what had happened by the time Jesus shows up on the scene with his ministry. And so what this man is guilty of in their eyes is breaking the law of God. But in reality, he's only broken a man-made rule. One of the rules particularly was you're not allowed to carry an object from one domicile to another. So really, he broke no rule, but they still accuse him of that. And, and when they realize they kind of don't really have anything on him because he kind of shifts the focus, he's like, hey, listen, I just did what this guy told me to do, and he must be from heaven because he healed me, so I just listened to him. They go, okay, well, who is this guy who healed you, who, who made you break the Sabbath? Who is he? And he goes, I don't know. Verse 14, let's go. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. And said to him, see, you are well. Now sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What's interesting about this text is that not only does Jesus initiate the first contact with this man, but the second. He searches this man out in the temple from among the multitude of people who are gathered there. And he communicates with him. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked a lot about wonder worship versus word worship. We talked about how there's a connection between miracles and the word, and sometimes people get miracles and not the word, and sometimes people get the word, but they don't get the miracles. What's interesting here is that the man got a miracle first, but Jesus did not leave him without a word. He wanted to come back and find him and tell him, hey, I'm not just being nice to you. There's something more important that I want to talk to you about. And what he says specifically, just go back and look at it one more time, just so we're clear. Verse 14, he says, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, uh, most people, when they come to this part of John chapter 5, when they come to this verse, they want to know, is Jesus saying, by way of implication, that this man was an invalid because of his sin? That, that's one way that you could read what Jesus is saying here. So in order to answer that, we just need to start with what we generally know to be true theologically, okay? So the first thing that we know to be true theologically from the rest of Scripture, from what, what God teaches us in the rest of His Word, is that not all physical suffering, not all bodily suffering, is caused by sin, right? There are a bunch of different reasons we could be suffering in our bodies that have nothing to do with sin. We know that Job's friends got in big trouble with God because when Job experienced physical suffering, all of his friends were like, Job, just tell us, man, what'd you do? There's no other reason this could have happened to you. You must have sinned. And God showed up on the scene and they regretted that. But you know, even though the book of Job made a big to-do about this fact, it, it must not have had a, a big impact because by the time... Jesus shows up on the scene and starts his ministry, it's obvious that people still think this way. Many Jews still kind of view a one-to-one -one correlation between bodily, physical suffering and sin. So you can see this in various encounters that Jesus has. Turn with me to John 9. Flip, flip over to John 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says, um, starting in verse 1, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And of course, Jesus answers them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man's physical infirmity had nothing to do with sin, either his sin or his parents' sin. Now go to Luke 13. Turn with me to Luke Starting in verse 1. Uh, there were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans. That's where Jesus just was, remember? Whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this is pretty bad. Pilate has been killing some Jews and he's mixing blood with sacrifices. It's, it's all horrendous. It's, it's a sign of... of significant suffering. And then uh, verse 2, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, we know from Jesus' own mouth that not all physical suffering is caused by sin. But there's more. We know that some physical suffering is caused by sin, both directly and indirectly. So, first of all, just consider the example, uh, the way that this fallen world works. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin, And there's still a cause and effect nature of sin and suffering that's at play in this fallen world. An example would be drunk driving. If you sin and get drunk and then sin again by breaking the law and getting in the car to go drive when you're drunk, you can get into an accident and be paralyzed like a buddy of mine that I grew up with. And then you will have suffered the physical consequences of your sin. That's the cause and effect. STDs, very similar. If you choose to enjoy sex in a way that is outside of God's good will for your life, the odds are exponentially higher, uh, higher for you to suffer the consequences of that sin in your body through STDs. So there's a natural cause and effect nature of sin and suffering in our bodies. But there is also something more direct, something more supernatural that must be considered. Consider the death of David's son. You remember, David sinned against God. God took his son away from him. You can consider the death of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, and so God killed them. You can take, for example, the suffering and the death that was taking place in Corinth. They were coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but they weren't celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were having drunken orgies. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were Uh, desecrating the ordinance that God had given them. And so Paul says, hey, listen, if you wonder why some of you guys are sick in your bodies and even why some of you have died, it's because of the way that you're acting towards God and one another. So we know two things to be true. On the one hand, not all physical suffering is caused by sin. On the other hand, some physical suffering is caused by sin. Both of these are biblically true. Now, 
before we move on to consider this man specifically, let me just give you a good practical rule of thumb for how to hold these two truths in tension. Unless you're Jesus, don't be too quick to try and interpret someone else's misery. Right? Jesus knows this man's life perfectly. If this man was an invalid because of his sin, Jesus knew that about him. He knows everything about this man in the same way that he knew everything about the woman at the well. Right? He knew all about her adulterous relationships. And if that's what's happening here, he knows all about this man's sin. But you don't know nothing about nothing. Okay? You don't know people's lives. It takes a long time to get to know someone and to hear their story. So be very, 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 so slow in fact that you should probably never do it. Very slow to try to correlate someone's physical suffering with sin. Okay, now, with that qualifier out of the way, this man, was he an invalid because of his sin? I don't know. I just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. I, I, thi- I think I, I have a, a guess that I could venture. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I just, I just don't know. I, I'm personally inclined to think that this man's disability was probably because of sin in light of his interaction with Jesus. And If that's true, then Jesus' words here are really multi-layered. In one sense, Jesus could be referring to him, could be speaking to him and referring to the natural consequences of his sin. Right? Hey, your sin got you to be crippled in the first place. Hey, you're healed. Don't go back and do that again. It's kind of like someone who, you know, gets another DUI. You know, you got your, you got your license revoked. Don't do that again because next time it's not just going to be your license that gets revoked. You're going to go to prison. That's what Jesus could be saying to this man. And if that's true, he's also speaking at another level. The most important level, which is saying, Something worse may happen to you than bodily injury, than bodily harm, than physical suffering. If you are not careful and if you continue to indulge in sin, you will face me once again in the future, not as your physician, but as your judge. Something worse, much worse, will happen to you on that day. But even if I'm wrong, even if that's not what Jesus is saying to this man, even if this man's condition had nothing to do with his sin, the point still stands. In verse 6, the healing that Jesus spoke of with this man was more than mere physical healing. And here in verse 15, the suffering that Jesus is speaking of is more than mere physical suffering. Regardless of how this man came to be an invalid, there is a day coming in the future where sin when sin will bring something infinitely worse. 38 years is a long time to suffer anything, right? Think about the last time you were sick. Maybe it was COVID, right? Since the flu's kind of disappeared. Uh, or maybe, bef- maybe you haven't gotten COVID. Maybe think about the last time you had the flu. Or for most of the men in the room, just because we're real sissies when it comes to getting sick, just think about the last time you had a cold, right? I remember the last time I had a cold, I, I was crying out to God like Job covered in boils, you know. How long, O Lord? You know, nine days of being slightly under the weather. But do you remember the last time you were really sick? I mean, really sick. 
Remember how bad that felt? Remember how long those nights were? You remember how you just wonder, like, am I ever going to be better again? Most people don't stay longer, sick longer than two weeks. 38 years. Imagine having the flu or a broken leg or being unable to walk or to feed yourself or go to the bathroom without help for 38 years. And Jesus says, if you're not careful, something much worse will happen to you. Eternity. You will suffer spiritually for all of eternity. I remember uh, w- once we had this, uh, this guy living with us. We were trying to minister to him, trying to evangelize him. He was a heroin addict. He had lost everything, lost his family. He had no one and nothing. And so we brought him into our home. And uh, he was doing pretty good for a while until he wasn't. And then he started shooting heroin up in our shed. And uh, I came to him after he was, you know, kind of coming down from the high a little bit. And I said, uh, I won't tell you his name, but I said, uh, hey man, if you don't stop this, you're going to die, right? I, I was kicking him out of the house. He, he had nowhere to go. He had no money. He was going to be addicted. All that was bad, but what I was saying to him was, if you don't stop this, something much worse is going to happen. You're going to die. And then I told him, friend, not only are you going to die, but when you die, something infinitely worse is going to happen. Something that you can't even imagine. All the jails, all your stints in rehab, all the infections you have from dirty needles, all the loss of friends and family, none of that can compare with what you are going to face when you die. Be careful. Stop sinning because something horrendous is waiting for you if you cannot get this sin under control. And friends, that's what I want to say to you this morning. You need to know that even if a doctor fixes everything that's wrong with your body today, even if a psychologist fixes all of your emotional hang-ups tomorrow, There is still a day coming when you will die. Modern man is so obsessed with curing physical ailments, but he gives no thought to eternity. But he should because our soul needs a physician infinitely more than our bodies do. And friends, the good news of the gospel is that we have a physician. His name is Jesus And this physician doesn't just put tinctures on our skin and uh, try to apply the newest therapies to what ails us. He doesn't just take pictures of our bones. This physician became sick in our place so that we could be healthy. He was crushed so that we might be healed. He died so that we might live. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us exactly this. But he, that's Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. That's the punishment that Jesus is talking about. The chastisement that should belong to us. He took that on himself so that we might have peace. And by his wounds 
we are healed. He's not talking about physical wounds. He's talking about spiritual wounds. Peter bears this out. Peter quotes this same passage in his epistle and he says, Christ Jesus himself bore our sins on his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes you are healed. Friends, if you want your soul to be healed, Jesus the physician makes that healing available to you today. If you just repent, turn away from your sin and trust in him. So I guess before moving on, I should just ask you the same question that Jesus asked this man. Do you want to be healed? Let's move on. Look at verses 15 through 18. Go back to John chapter 5. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I find it fascinating that these verses are here right after this man's healing. You ever stop and think about why certain parts of the Bible are there in the first place or why they're where they are in the Bible? I mean, John didn't have to tell us about the interaction with the Jews afterwards. He didn't have to tell us about this, this conversation, this, this controversy. He could have just been like, yeah, there's another miracle, boom, you know, uh, add it to the list. But he says, after the miracle, there was a controversy. The Jews came to Jesus and they go, oh, you're the guy. You're the guy who got this guy to break the Sabbath. They accused Jesus. The text says that they persecuted him. Why does John tell us this? Well, it's because John is not mainly interested in getting us to see that Jesus is kind. John wants us to see that Jesus is God. And in his interaction with these Jewish leaders, we see, in fact, that he is God because Jesus himself says so. So, let's dig a little deeper. The issue is twofold. Number one, Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders understand that to be a breaking of the law, breaking the Sabbath. To be clear, Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath. There's nothing in the law that says healing on the Sabbath is forbidden uh, we're not going to talk about that this morning because this is a theme that's going to come up over and over again in John's gospel. We'll deal with it more later. The second issue in this text, and this is the big one, is that Jesus, in his interaction with these Jewish leaders, claims to be God. And here's how he does it. The, the first way is he calls God my father. He says, my father is working even till now. And, you know, we've been taught to pray the Lord's Prayer our Father, who art in heaven, right? Like, we're, yeah, God's my daddy. Like, we're used to talking like that, but no Jew would have spoken like this in Jesus' day. Jews collectively would have spoken of God as their, you know, our Father, right? They would, have, they would have felt comfortable with that, but no individual Jew would have felt comfortable calling God my Father. But Jesus does that. 
But that's not all. He, he has an argument, right? His argument has to do with whether or not he's breaking the Sabbath. And this, this I think, is fascinating because Jesus has the Bible on his side. Jesus knows the Bible better than these guys. You know, you walk through the Gospels and everywhere that Jesus goes, he has an encounter with the Pharisees and he knows the word and they don't know the word. They have the word memorized, but they don't know it. Reminds me, I was in prison with a guy, who, uh, sorry, I was in jail with a guy who, uh, he could just quote any part of the Bible. He had been locked up for, you know, decades and he could just tell you, oh yeah, uh, you know, First Timothy, da 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 and he could rattle out. He spent all his free time memorizing the Bible. And then I would watch him, you know, go do drugs in the back corner of the cell. He knew the Bible, but he didn't know the Bible. The Pharisees know the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. They they can't see that Jesus, the incarnate word to whom all the scripture points, is standing right before them. Jesus can beat them. He can pull out his scroll and be like, you're wrong, let me show you. But he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he appeals to one of their own traditions in order to ruin them. You see, there was an argument amongst some of the Jewish leaders, you know, the rabbinical schools leading up to the days of Jesus, and it was around a theological question, really theological trolling more than anything. And the question was this, is God a Sabbath breaker? Now, you may be thinking, Sean, that's blasphemous. God's not a Sabbath breaker. But this was the way that the rabbis tried to tease out certain things. They would ask a, a question that seemed to be offensive in order to you know, help us think more clearly. So the rabbis would ask, is God a Sabbath breaker? Why would they ask that? Well, because they understood that God was at work at all times. God is always holding up the world by the power of his might. God is constantly working to hold every atom and every cork and every element in the universe together. He is the sustainer of all things. And that is a kind of work. And if he's doing that all the time, then that must mean that he's doing it on the Sabbath. So if God is working on the Sabbath, is God a Sabbath breaker? That's the question. And the answer was obviously no. And how did they get there? They said there's a kind of work that's not really work. There's a kind of work that's actually rest. And all the work that God does is the kind of work that is rest. Jesus knew about this debate, this theological question. And so instead of pulling out the scrolls and saying, now you're wrong because of this and let me give you my scripture verse, Jesus says, hey, you know how God is always working so he's not breaking the Sabbath? Yeah. Me too. The Jews understood immediately. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And so from this point forward, they said, we have got to kill this man. You see, for the Jews, there are only two options. You are either under the law or you are above the law. The Jews thought that Jesus was under the law because the only one who is above the law is God. But Jesus says, nope, I am the Lord of the law. Now, what is so utterly tragic about this interaction 
And I'm not using that word lightly. This is tragic. Is that these Jewish leaders who are so obsessed with Sabbath rest cannot see that God's Sabbath rest is standing right in front of them. They are so obsessed with rest, but they don't understand that God sent His Son into the world so that they could rest. And as that rest stands before them, they hate Him. They despise Him. They are blind to Him. And from this point forward, they will try and kill Him. So my question for you this morning is, friends, can you see the rest that God is making available to you in Jesus? Do you understand the depth of mercies that God is making available to you? The rest that he offers you is not just one day a week where you don't have to go to work. That is a paltry rest. He's offering us an eternal rest. He's not just offering us bodily rest where our joints and our sinews and our muscles finally get a break from all the hard work we're doing. He's giving us a spiritual rest. He's not just giving us rest from something so that we don't have to do that stuff that we hate to do. He's giving us rest in someone. Like when you have been gone from your wife or your husband from, for who knows, a week, two weeks, a month, and you finally come home and you crawl into bed and she puts her arms around you. That's the kind of rest that God is offering you in Jesus. Friends, aren't you tired? Aren't you ready to rest? Aren't you ready to just lay down the wearisome troubles of this world? Aren't you ready to rest from sin and from dead works and bad religion and from the burden of the law? Friends, if you are ready to rest, the Lord of the Sabbath stands ready, eager, to welcome you into his rest today. Let's pray. Father God, we have worked this morning. We have strained in our prayers and in our singing and in trying to pay attention as your word was read and preached and trying to apply it to our lives so that we can be faithful and, and grow to be more like your son Jesus in many ways, Lord, every, every part of our soul is exhausted from the work that we do here on Sunday mornings. But this work is rest for us, God. And it is preparing us for that final, eternal rest. God, I pray that every single person in this room will be able to enter into your son Jesus and rest in him and enjoy him forever. Amen.